of the GPP, the Garden Products Podcast. Woo! Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Love the excitement. That's what we do. We need... Um... I'm fully nervous. This is my um, <laughs> my first presidential candidate. And... Um, <laughs> first candidate. You know, you know, you know, if you, if you were told, if anyone was told that they could, like, interview the president himself, right? Yeah. You'd, you'd have a million questions because everything's upset you, right? So you just you want to ask him, and why this? And why that? <laughs> like, okay, answer now, please. We need an answer. So, and here it is. Hello, Marik. How are you? Can, can you hear us? I'm all right. How are you? Yeah, oh, can hear you. Fantastic. You're very well. Fantastic, and uh, very glad, very honoured, and privileged to have you on uh, this call. But to have you on uh, our episode of the Ghana Paradox Podcast, the GPP. So we are very, very appreciative because we know that you are extremely busy. There's so much going on, and uh, yes, thanks for making time. Thanks for being here, and thanks for the invitation, of course. Absolutely. So here on the call, we have uh, we are on the on this episode we have uh, my panelist uh, Charlene Bella. I mean she's, I mean you might be familiar because she's one of the most active Twitter users I've ever seen in my life. She's always ready to make sure that we question our leaders as you as civil society should do, especially when it comes to Ghana. She always makes sure that we ask not just pertinent question but question that will let leaders and the entire population and society understand that we just don't need words, but we need action when it comes to Ghana. I mean, we've all heard you again. Apparently, no, apparently, there was another accident, correct me if I'm wrong, in Kaswa. Uh, Kaswa, I hope I'm saying Yeah, I'm just, I'm just hearing about that, yeah. And uh, yes, so for example, we've been, and I know for a fact that Charlene has been saying it for a long time. She's been literally saying, when are we going to fix the roads? I mean, uh, I think Charlene, correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. A few episodes ago that we literally said that in Ghana, there's literally more, even higher chances yeah. to unfortunately have an accident and pass away than COVID, uh, than catching COVID 19 at this point. And uh, it's, uh, and it's unfortunate that after so many years since my parents, uh, time we're still here talking about can we please fix the road so yeah in a nutshell this is Charlene for you transparent ready to question and making sure that everyone is accountable chief investigator and top prosecutor I should say <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you're gonna get me in trouble <laughs> I've no I've noted the name down <laughs> a big name trust me yeah. Most most like most likely we have um, argued or, or <laughs> shared views on 
on Facebook walls and, and all the rest of it. That's very that's possible, very possible yeah. to be honest. But yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, yes, my other panelists who will soon join us is Papasi Butcher, uh, industry champion when it comes to not just in terms of diaspora, but even in terms of Ghana. It's uh, just, of course, it's always been very quiet and very modest and discreet, but then is another great, uh, yeah, he's another great champion of all things Ghana, but especially when it comes to pushing the country forward because after, oh God, 1957, how many years he is now? Isn't he? 63 plus. 63 plus years. Yes, it's about time that we have something to show forth. Sorry, Charlene. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry. Yeah. I you were saying Over something. to me. So, apologies. And, uh, <laughs> oh, no, I do apologize. And then, no. <laughs> uh, last but not least, there's myself, uh, Derek Osamwaku. I love, I think, from the last time we spoke, I mean, uh, I love all things PR and comms, and I always believe that it's a high time that Ghana's been doing a good work when it comes to position itself strategically to narrate a good story. But it's also time that we just don't narrate a story, but we also ensure that people see and act on the story. Yes, yeah, so if uh, without further ado, because we know that you're extremely busy, I would say let's begin. And first and foremost, uh, Marik, please do tell us, uh, tell us more about yourself, who you are, especially as we are here with the independent, I mean, it's not just anyone, guys and uh, uh, girls at home listening or to all of our listeners at home and all, we are here with the independent presidential candidate, so potential president of the, is it going to be the sixth Republic of Ghana or is, are we still in the fifth? It's still the fourth republic. Actually. Oh, it's still the fourth. <laughs> um, I'm moving forward. Yeah. I'm moving forward. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. You, well, you, you're you're getting me suspicious. Are you planning a coup? At all? No, at all. <laughs> oh goodness! But yeah, so we can. Uh, yeah, we can be witnessing to the election of the next president of Ghana. So. Uh, yeah, we're here. We're very privileged to speak with uh, Marek Kefigani. So please do tell us more about yourself, who you are. And uh, yeah, well, let's take it from there. Right. Um, thank you again, guys, uh, for the opportunity. Uh, glad to be here. Um, so uh, Marek, uh, call me coffee. I prefer the coffee in the middle. I mean, that uh, has a lot of endearment for me because I was always called coffee growing up. Um, so Kofi was born in a, a little, well, not, well, only little now. Uh, it used to be the, the third biggest uh, city in Ghana, actually. Um, so I was born in Keta. Um, I was born in Keta to an engineer father and a businesswoman, um, uh, um, and I grew up with my grandparents in Keta because both of them, uh, you know, both my parents were traveling quite a bit. So uh, I grew up with my grandparents. Uh, my my grandfather was a fisherman, so I literally grew up moving between the sea and the lagoon uh, in terms of fishing. Um, and then on market days, which was every three days, I would go to help my grandmother to sell what we call Obroniwe Wufo, so second-hand clothing. Uh, so that, that's a bit of my childhood. Um, 
So, mm. you know, everything you would do as a fisherman, you would, you would expect me to have done. Uh, uh, play around in the sand, climb coconut trees and all that and all that. Um, beautiful childhood. And then, of course, um, I attended secondary school. Uh, so I went away to join my father at some point in Liberia, Nigeria, and, and then I think a few other places, and then we came back home to Ghana, where I started my secondary school. Uh, so I came back to Keta to start Keta Secondary School. Uh, did my O-levels, A-levels, got admission to read chemistry, and then decided enough of the science. Um, and I felt I needed to go back to my first love, which was... Uh, the business subjects and the arts. And so I went back to study professional accounting and I, I chartered as a certified charter accountant. Uh, 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 and that has been my profession. Um, now, even though I chartered as an accountant, I largely have also practiced in other areas. I practiced as an international development person, which is what I've done in the last uh, uh, decade plus, uh, at least the last 15 years at least. Um, and then, of course, I also lecture in public financial management, both of which I have done extensively. So I started off as an auditor here in, uh, in Ghana. I uh, did a lot of audit, a lot of audit uh, for big companies, uh, small companies, government agencies, UN-related projects. Then I went to the UK, uh, where you are all now, and uh, worked with some really shall I say, mind-opening and uh, really, really amazing career-boosting organizations. So I worked at the point, worked with the Commonwealth of Nations Secretariat on Paul Mall Street, and then uh, moved over to work for International Alert, and then finally Crown Agents. Um, and then all of those work were not entirely in the UK. Uh, most of them saw me in, in pretty much a countries, Ghana included, uh, most of them seeing Africa and Southeast Asia, managing government funds, so funds belonging to the Department for International Development, which I worked with uh, for a long while uh, through Crown Agents. So, so that has been my profession, really, and uh, uh, I wouldn't say that was all what it was when I was in the UK. I mean, I, I came to the UK as a chartered accountant, but found myself working because uh, you know you, they don't just you know you don't just come in and expect that oh you're recognized right away because you know you wear a nice little suit. But and I came in and I worked. I, I did pretty much everything else most most uh, sojourners uh, do in their first few years. I worked as uh, let me see what did I do. I, I did I did some work as a cleaner. Did some work as. Uh, uh, so construction side guys, so we did some construction work. I think my favorite, my favorite was working as a, a security guard in Duckford and <laughs> Crayford and uh, all those far Kent areas. Uh, that, was, that was really lovely, made some really good friends. People I still have as friends today, I still call them uh, from here. Um, so, so it's it, it, it's been a journey. It's been a real journey. Um, and you know, uh, got married um, at a point in the UK, had kids, um, and then you know the whole politics agenda came up, uh, which was which was which was a really crazy time because it was right in between when I was at my career peak and when I had made a decision. You know what, something needed to be done. 
So about four years back, I came back home. Um, and before I really got divorced, um, but my kids are uh, with, with my, my ex, uh, and they're doing beautifully well. And so, um, so here I am, four years on, we're trying to push an agenda, trying to, you know, turn this thing around, this country around to a path that we think we can all be proud of and, uh, uh, and get this country to work for everybody, not a few people. So, yeah, that's in summary me. I have stopped lecturing now. I used to lecture in public financial management. I had to give up lecturing to do this a bit more full time. Um, I don't practice uh, anymore, even though I still get to advise colleagues and friends who are still in the in the space uh, from time to time. Yeah. I, you know, I get calls from all odd places, South Sudan, Sudan, uh, uh, DR Congo. You know, because of the institutional knowledge we carry away. So, so yeah, that's a bit about me. Um, and don't be fooled by all of that. I'm still very, very young. I'm 46 years old. <laughs> Wow, that's what I was about to say. Goodness. Yeah, that's a bit about me. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you say your bit, it does seem quite a lot because I mean, you really live, how would I put it nicely? You definitely live a full, uh, yeah, proper, fully fledged life. I mean, that's incredible because <laughs> you literally got yourself, you did the Ghana experience, you did the UK experience, and you know what I really love? that you didn't glaze over the usually people would say oh yes i went to london chartered accountant i used to work with i don't know uh, <laughs> with some of the best uh, some of the best i used to work with uh i don't ey i work with this other one no you literally yeah. said well you did but you also said i also double into other jobs and you literally yeah. said construction you did cleaning i mean how many Ghanaians would be Honestly, the front enough to say I came <laughs> to Europe to do some cleaning. Well, it's part I mean, of the story, isn't it? Exactly, and that's yeah, why I think that you can't, leave, you can't leave the building blocks out, you know. And for me, for me, those things really shaped me. People, people don't understand when I say that, but it, it really look. I, I tell you, one of the biggest things I learned being a, a cleaner or a security guard or a construction. Mm -hmm. So one of the biggest things I learned was that. It's actually possible to create jobs for citizens Thank you. Um, Thank that you. they can do and not feel that they are the most inferior in society. When I was doing those jobs, I, my pay was enough for me to pay my rent, uh, do my shopping, my grocery shopping, uh, buy a cloth here and there, feel human. Um, and still have some money over the weekend to dash to a pub and have a pint or beer. And, uh, and and so it just made me look at employment in a totally different way. And and mind you, the money I was making in the UK, even though by UK standards, somebody might say, oh, I'm in the low income and in bracket at the time, it was still, you know, multiplied by how much seeds people were getting at the time. And it was still more than some people wearing their suit and ties and working in the office. So <laughs> it is possible to live decently as a people uh, without feeling that, oh, this job is below me and that job yeah. is below me. And, and that's how I felt, you know. When I go out, it doesn't feel like, oh, you're the guy who was a security guy, so you can't hang around with it. That's not a way it felt. It felt just normal and so that's that's a big lesson i took away 
and this is great because I think that one of the things as well that my granddad, I remember, uh, has been saying is that people sometimes look down on people from less and we for no reason, let's be honest, for yeah. doing these certain jobs. But really and truly, people like from the security guard to the cleaners, they're the one that literally hold the keys to access to people because unless the security guard would tell you, yes, you're allowed to contact this person, you will never ever be able to get in touch with this other person so absolutely exactly so i'm very i am very grateful about your honesty and that's why we really need in terms of especially as a diaspora because you know what i really see you as a yeah as a as a diaspora candidate because of course you've seen it you you understand where we're all standing because i think that even on this podcast we always say when are diaspora going to get a vote or a say? But we will get into that. We will definitely get into that. And uh, uh, and another thing, I think that it's what I think is very important because I'm sure that you might have had this question asked. So as you are, you've been living abroad, so sometimes people might say, oh, but what do you really know about God? What do you really know about God? And especially you took the decision to leave a corporate wealth which was quite lucrative let's be honest to get into politics so the question now goes was it because of power was it because of money or what was the rationale behind such a drastic decision oh trust me it was none of those and uh it was none of those I, i think one of the things we don't really understand in ghana is that there actually are people in this world for money is not everything. Um, <laughs> and um, and I, I like to say, look, if I, if I just wanted to make money and live my quiet life in a little corner somewhere and be excited and happy, uh, travel around the world, I would have just taken a job with the UN, you know, um, <laughs> Go work in South Sudan, for example, get paid risk allowance. That's enough to cover all my travel. Um, but, but it's not that. It, it really is not that. I, I wouldn't give up all of that. And for power, you know, I, I don't get the whole... Power for me is not power until it is being... Uh, it is, it's a blessing to the majority of your people. Otherwise, it isn't power. Um, so, I mean, there were a lot of other things that brought me where I am now uh, in terms of what drove me to, to this point. The first time I really had a, a clash with the system, let me put it that way, was um, <laughs> that I, um, I had to take my big sister to, uh, she's not in the country anymore, but I had to take my big sister uh, to a hospital and, and she was offered the floor you know, and, and this was a pregnant woman, right? And uh, I couldn't say anything. And the only reason why I couldn't say anything was not that I couldn't say it. It was because there were other women sitting on the floor. Uh, some with their babies. And, 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 and it, it just hit me. I, I said to myself, no, this can't be right. This cannot be right. And then I think the secondary thing that got it for me, and it's just this little, little things. You know, we, we see a lot of these things around. A lot of young people, you see potential in them. Um, and then you talk to them and you realize they're not going beyond where they are now. Not because they don't want to, but because 
there aren't the facilities and systems and procedures in place to support them. Um, so most of them go up and then they just fall down. It isn't because they've hit a glass ceiling. It's just that the environment is not supportive. Um, I've seen a lot of guys who are trying their hands at tech. They're doing really great, but you do need some help at some point and beyond a level. They don't get all those things. And and so on a daily basis, I, I literally see human lives, even though they are living and walking around, around I see human lives wasting away. Uh, and I think there's, there's this other bit that I, I will never forget what I talked to my old man about. He's quite old now. I talked to him about what kind of life they had during the, the olden days. And he said to me, look, I went to the University of Science and Technology. Some of us were actually paid just because we were studying science. We had buffet breakfast. We had buffet lunch. We had uh, a, a tray that went around during... Uh, uh, class hours for sandwiches and all that, and we were one to a room. In if it went that far, it would be two to a room. And then I rolled that back, and I'm here. I'm saying, well, we my friends, we never had that during our years. And and then the current generation, some of them go to campus and they don't even have a place to sleep. So it's not gotten better. It's actually gotten worse. And then the last thing for me was, you know, I traveled around graciously uh, by the grace of God. I was, I, was, I was blessed to have traveled around a lot. You go to all these countries and you realize that uh, they've done a lot for themselves. And yet they don't have as much resources as we have. Or whether it's human or whether it's, you know, uh, under, under the ground resources, they didn't have that much. And yet they've been able to do so much for themselves. And each time I came back home, it was the question that kept staring at me. Why aren't we getting there? You know, um, and for yeah. me, it came down to one thing, which is that there's just a few wolves leading everybody else, you know, um, and they make the most out of the system, uh, build a system that they get to be the only ones there. Uh, milk it as much as they can, and then the rest, they throw it in the air and say, hey, look, we're doing politics. Everybody come in. This is democracy. It isn't democracy. Hmm. What we have is, uh, is a whole system of well-orchestrated kleptocracy, you know, um, yeah. and we, we, we go around endorsing it with our votes, but this is no democracy at all if your pocket has no democracy, if your, if your standard of living yeah. has no democracy, hmm. then you do not live in a democracy. Yeah, so all this is so Madame Could yeah, could I ask? Hi, <laughs> um I'm back on again. Um with everything that you just said, um, and I feel like the, the diaspora especially feel the same right, way, right. right? Um we probably share we probably do share the vision um in that sense. And maybe um you might be able to share just how much has been influenced from your upbringing in Ghana and how much of that um, you you kind of felt like has, has been shaped by your experience um, living outside of Ghana? Right. Well, actually, it's it's been shaped by both because uh, one side of mm. it is that I remember what my childhood was like, you know. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Shaling, let me give you a very basic example of that side of the equation. I When I was growing mm -hmm. up, we could go out and play, all right? Um, yes, mm -hmm. I know that the, the, the terrain has changed. I know the economy has changed. I know society has evolved and all that. 
So we can't have kids going around jumping on trees and you know swimming and all that. I, I get that. But even though we have evolved, today kids are no more kids. We don't have playgrounds, we don't have open spaces. Kids do not play. We we we, we stopped allowing even be kids. Um so as a matter of speaking, kids run from school to home. Uh, maybe follow their mom or dad to church and then back home and it's that cycle. And if we can allow kids to grow as kids, play mm -hmm. is a factor of growing up. If we don't let that, then we've not evolved as a society. So that is also the things that shapes me because I understood what my, 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 my childhood looked like and it's not mm -hmm. like that anymore. And yes, the diaspora had a huge influence. I like, like I said earlier, I was lucky to have worked, done some work with some of the most amazing organizations in the UK. Did some work uh, directly connected to the UK government through the Department for International Development. So I, I got first-hand view of how systems run. I got mm -hmm. first-hand view of the discipline. Uh, and here's one thing I always say, look, if there's one thing we've got really wrong, it's the fact that we do not separate the art of winning elections from the business of running a state. If mm. you come to a place like Europe, the state is run as a real business. You know, yeah. um, they say you, you campaign in poetry um, and you govern in prose, don't they? Thank you. I remember when we had to make justifications to parliament to get money to go and uh, spend in, in, in Africa or Southeast Asia. You don't just go and get money or one person gets up and makes a decision. You have to present a commercial uh, uh, justification. You present a strategic justification. You present a financial justification. You present five separate justifications before you get money pulled out. Whereas down here, you know, one minister can get up and say, you know, oh, we promised this village a road and we, we will build a road for them. Irrespective of what differences I saw, um, and I realized it's not what we have in our public sector or that's not the most efficient way we're managing our public sector. So, well, yes, those, those yeah. two sides do actually influence my viewpoint of where we are and where we need to be. Yeah. And, and so I guess my question is, to begin with properly, um, what what is your vision then for Ghana? Um, and, and I hate to be, I hate to be shallow about it, but um, if you're able to package that in, in, in the most kind of bite-sized way, because uh, obviously a, a manifesto is a long thing, but, and that will tell us about your, your vision, but um, right. yeah, it, what's your vision? I mean, I, I could cast my vision in two different ways. The, the first, you know, more generic thing I, I would like to say is that we simply want to build a country that works for everybody, not not mm -hmm. not not a few people. Mm -hmm. And for me, underlying that is to make sure systems work. Mm -hmm. That for me, if we can get to happen, you know, because the public sector, for example, drives everybody else's lives in a country. So if we can get the systems to work in the public sector, uh, Charlene, I kid you not, I believe everything else would work. I mean, and I, when I talk about system, I'm talking about largely everything that makes that makes uh, you know the business of, of of running a state work. It includes making changes to the constitution because some of it has gone archaic, some of it is obsolete and needs to change. Uh, 
where we've evolved. Um, I'm talking about the government procedures around spending. Uh, I'm talking about government procedures in terms of strategic, you know, uh, access to buy and not to buy. It's the basic thing whole public system work. And if we can get that to work, then the issues around corruption is not even going to be an issue. Um, mm. The issues around um, uh, you know, spending outside of what we can afford is not even going to be an issue. Um, and so one of my biggest agendas is you know, uh, institutional reforms to make sure the system mm -hmm. works. Mm -hmm. And uh, no, thanks for that. I agree. And I remember that one of your, in one of the manifestos when I was reading, you talk about building economic, social, uh, technological and political pillars that will drive Ghana into first world yeah. status within the next 25 years. So my, I think I have two questions here. Because sure. my first question is, when you mean first world status, what do you mean? Because I always say that we need some time to be careful when we say first world, because sometimes it's like we are comparing ourselves to the Western world, whereas I think in a more kind of Julius Nyerere sort of way, we need to ensure that we become the best of the best. So we need to stop doing this. Oh, Ghana is uh, is way ahead of other African countries, but then we're a bit lagging behind other Western countries. So that's when I, mm. I want to know, what do you mean by that? And also when you talk about um, social and especially technological because we all know that i mean i yeah. wanted to know where was the status at the moment and where and how do you think this can be implemented under your yeah under your tenure as uh, as president right 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 well on the first call um on the first call i you know um i have been in development and i will tell you for a fact that no matter how advanced even your is you would get classified in only three forms. So you are either a, a developing country, a middle income earning country, or a developed country. It's one of those three. So um, when I said what I said, I my view or my sense was that you know we're, we're way behind. Even though we are called a middle income country, um, I often said we should ask ourselves if we're even behaving as one or if we're even operating as one. Um, and so when I said that, that was largely aspirational that, you know what, we, we can't be playing around um, and feel that because we're middle income and most African countries are not, that's enough. It cannot be enough. I mean, at the end of the day, we are mm -hmm. one of the countries that are being most blessed in Africa uh, mm -hmm. and one of the ones that should be great and strong, as our anthem says. Uh, we, we, so we cannot be at this level and think we are okay. Um, so mine was hugely was hugely aspirational to say, you know what, there's a higher level we can get to. Um, and we should get to that level. Um, and so that's, that's that for me. It's not to say we're comparing ourselves to the UK or to uh, Belgium. Or we could, you know, I, I don't want to say we could never compare ourselves. I just think that even if we did, there are different ways we should be comparing ourselves because they have their strengths, we have ours. Uh, and I agree with you that we should be focused on our strengths and not try to compare ourselves on every other level. And so that's that's that for me. In terms of technology, I I, I am a fan of technology because I feel that's 
the, that's the way the world is going to run for the next five, zero years, 50 years. And so if we cannot plug ourselves in that, then we have no business saying we're, we're going to continue as a country. Be kid you not, 20 years from now, you know, the size of our economy is probably not going to be measured by how much uh, physical cash we have or gold we have. It's going to be measured by how, how large we are on the technology map. Uh, and so mm. we need to be looking yeah. in that direction. The way I see it is that it should start from the educational sector. You know, um, I want to see children who are going to even primary school. And, and this one is, you know, I just want to be clear about that. I want to see children who are in primary school um, holding tablets and getting access to knowledge. I don't want to say education, knowledge. Mm -hmm. Now, for me, that does a number of things. One, you have literally, just by handing every kid a tablet, for example, you have equalized the quality of education across the country. So it does not even matter that the best teacher in social studies is only based in Accra and therefore only students in Accra will get access to that. Whatever he has to say or teach is on the, is on the network. And so, you know, even if you have a child in, uh, in, in Salaga, for example, they can get access to that knowledge. The second thing it does for me is that it starts to position our young people in the future. They do not have to come out of school before trying to get a grasp of what are the basic forms of technology I need to be aware of. Our educational system should be modeling from scratch what people are going to meet in industry. And if we can get that right, then we so are not doing education. And so, so there are a few things that I feel that technology can do uh, for us. It can also leapfrog us because the thing with technology is that it creates an opportunity to bring creativity into Um And we have a lot of age-old problems that we have solved a single way for so long and it's not being solved. And so we need these young people to get to the point where their mind is everywhere and in everything, and therefore they can pull different angles to a problem and begin to solve it creatively. So, you know, technology for me is a huge, huge thing. Um, I've always said it's that and, uh, and uh, tourism are one of the lowest hanging fruits that we can begin to create entire economies out of, and we will do that. I don't see why not. We will do that. These, are, these things are not difficult. We've seen them happen. We've seen them, you know, done. And so it's not like it's 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 a strange thing to us, uh, at least for some of us. So you know, these things need to get done. I I, I like I like the fact that you you do seem to be quite clear on technology and education, and it does seem like you've thought this one through quite a lot. But how how do we like really truly you get the presidency, the Minister of Finance turns to you and says, what do you want to do? How are we going to make this happen? How do you actually finance that? You know, Ghana and the most of Africa, right, has um, like near 50% of our population that is under 18 years old, right? Mm. So that's that's not the five, 10 children in the UK that you're giving a, a tablet to. This is a large um, proportion of our population. That's a big hefty bill how do you 
how do you finance how do you pay for um the type of technological revolution that you're you're proposing in the education system um thank you Shelley. i mean <laughs> these things are not um you know it's one to say uh it's too huge and so we wouldn't do them at all but it's another thing mm. to say yes we agree that it's almost like saying uh feel the fear and do it anyway you know yeah. um and and i and i have different ways i could answer this and this is not just giving an answer this is reality for me um i don't intend to have a 120 size government i intend to have a 50 minister government so that's already a slash uh, on public funding. <laughs> that's already a slash in public funding imagine where all that money could go i don't intend buying three or four v8s for all my ministers so that's already a slash in funding um we're mm -hmm. able as a country to spend over 20 billion okay on paying for uh banks that have collapsed under the guises of people who are still walking around in this country not arrested not prosecuted um mm -hmm. and and it's just money we've just thrown we, we've literally just taken 20 billion and just thrown it in the air and no Ghanaian currently has any justification why that money has been thrown out and so mm -hmm. it's not to say there is money if we need it you know there is money um you know look at the election we're running this year and with whole new voter register uh, in the midst of COVID, and there's there's absolutely no basis for me why we would spend over a hundred uh, a million, right? Uh, just putting a vote, and I've gone for my voter register, and it's just a laminated piece of uh, paper, you know. So th there is there if we, it, I, I always I'm a finance person by the way, I'm an accountant by the way, and one of the things we would always tell you, and then this is something. I have always said when we were managing funds that had to go to project, we'll always say to you, look, you can you never get to the point where you say, I have enough money to do everything. It's always about priority. And, and if you get your priorities right, the first level of your priority always go well to be able to fund the second tier, the third tier, and the fourth tier of your priority. Charlene, what we are proposing to do, okay? Mm -hmm. In about five, seven years from now, likely to produce a huge volume of young people who are exceptionally technologically savvy compared to what we have now. Mm -hmm. The effect of something like that is that private capital who sees that kind of labor is going to come back and say, okay, okay, these guys have got it right now. Can we move some of our companies that to be able to support what we're doing, open up to the African market. So um, I think spending money at, at the rate at which you put it, and largely so, it should be scary for any government. But I think it's largely about priorities and whether we see education as our priority. I, I stand for one thing, which is that, you know, people talk about, oh, shape up the economy, do that to the economy. And I say to people, look, you, we've got it all wrong. The knowledge is the only economy every country actually sells. You know, whatever it is you want to manufacture, it requires a certain level of complex knowledge. I mean, we can produce computers because we don't have 
the complexity of knowledge required to start manufacturing computers. We can't do x-rays because, so it's not the material. This is one thing I say to my communist friends here in Ghana, who wear their big suits and feel that they know everything about economics. I say to them, look, you guys got it wrong. Economics is not something you twist around and make happen. Economics is really the efficiency you are getting from all the other real sectors. If your great sector is not working, there's no money going to come into your economy. If your manufacturing sector is not really working, there's no money coming into the economy. So let's talk, talk about, and I tell people, don't talk about economy like, oh, that is something you can work your way around and suddenly GDP is to rise. No, um, it's actually a reflection of your, of your efficiency. So there is money to get spent on that if we if we figure out how to be. Uh, so your economy. your solution your solution to paying for this is to stop the V8s and um, perhaps don't bail out the banks. Uh, a bit concerning, just in the sense of what is politically prudent. Um, you know, the banks. It did get to a point. I hope you might agree with me that mm-hmm. Ghana had too many banks. Um, it was very underregulated. Right. Um, like I think in one one point in time in my life at 22 years old, I thought I could set up a bank in Ghana. But, you know, it, it was literally quite, um, you know, a Wild Wild West type situation in terms of just doing what you like. Um, so there are it sounds like you didn't fully agree with with how the government handled that. But did you see any other way of handling We'll, we'll get to the V8s definitely, because I do want to cover that, especially since we were talking about roads earlier. But in terms of the bank bailout and where our money goes to save certain sectors, mm. was there anything else we could have done? I, I don't think what I'm saying is that uh, don't consolidate the financial sector. Um, mm. But what I'm saying is that if there is, and this is not to say, uh, let me give you an example. One of the uh, mm. one of the the uh, one of the banking uh, what do I call it? Uh, Guru, and I'm not calling him a guru. Uh, one of the banking magnates whose bank was, uh, um, I can't remember what it's name. I think his name is. Uh, Which bank uh, is it? Um, I think it was the Capital Bank of one of those. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was he was taken to court recently as he's the only one who I know has been taken to court, and mm-hmm. and one of the things he suggested or his his. Uh, his, uh, his, his corner suggested was if he could pay some of the money back in mm-hmm. order to complete some leniency. And, I'm, and mm-hmm. I'm saying to myself, okay, you see, this is exactly what I was talking about. We send good money after bad money, mm-hmm. and we don't know what we're recovering, Charlie. Yeah. And it's not like these banks, the money just went into thin air. Every money that leaves a bank ends in asset yeah it, it's the basic you know principle of either banking or accounting or the financial sector it doesn't just float so you ask yourself we've thrown out about 20 billion what have we gotten back mm-hmm. and 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 so for me it's not about saying I, I, what i was implying was not to say you know what it's not necessary to 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 uh, consolidate the banking system, make it as more. What I was trying to put across was that, that there's got to be a basis upon which we're sending this good money after bad money. Otherwise, why do it? Yeah. So, Murray, 
go on. Before Charlene goes, I <laughs> wanted to, I know Charlene's got a few questions, but I also have a few questions sure. here for you. As in, we know that you will have, when elected, of course, you'll have four years. So firstly, I wanted, and everyone I believe wanted to know, who is going to be your running mate since we've all had the nomination of the vice president. It's running really. mate season. Of course, it's running mate season. And also, another another two questions I would like to ask would be, will you be releasing, as you're coming from a very diaspora sort of setting, so will you be releasing your tax return and asset list and especially, we all know that, I know that you've said in few interviews that at the end of the day, it's high time the Ghanaians will vote for two systems, another system that's not just MPP and DC, because really and truly, it's literally just been corruption alternating in a cycle from uh, a few articles that you, and from few articles that you've said in the past. So I wanted to know how do you expect to win if throughout their history, Ghanaians have been so used to alternate between MPP, NDC, NDC, MPP? Okay. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad we're still in the season of running, mate. The season is not over yet, so just look out for my running, mate. Um, <laughs> I'm very curious. Is it, is it that you know curious. who it is? Have you, have, you know who it is? You know who it is announced, or you're still thinking? Oh, no. Um, I think we've gone past the stage of thinking. Um, so we will be announcing it quite quite soon, actually. Sure. Um, are we going to get an exclusive on the GPP? I mean, is it going to be a day? <laughs> sorry, I didn't get that. What was that? No, we say, are we going to get an exclusive? Are you going to tell us a date when you're going to do this announcement? Oh, we will announce a date. We will announce a date just like everybody else does. Um, okay. um, so, so, yeah, that's going to happen uh, pretty soon, actually. Uh, no, we are aware of the seasons and the times, but we also um, we also have decided, you know, what this is. We're playing this at our. This is our our process. This is our way of doing things. Um, we don't want to get into the hang of MPP has done it, so you should, or NDC has done it, and therefore you should. Um, at the end, mm -hmm. we don't have the advantages they have, and so we 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 have we have always done this a bit differently uh, from how they have. Um, but that's on one side. So the other question you asked about, uh, uh, is it 25? I think it's actually a constitutional requirement that you should be able to uh, uh, show what assets you have before you go into office. Um, um, and then you're also required to, uh, in my case, for example, I've had to give up um, my other citizenship, which was the British uh, as soon as I return home. Um, and then you're also required to show a tax certificate. Um, and, and, and so all those things are requirements even before I file my nomination. So, so yeah, I mean, those are things you cannot do away. Um, uh, you cannot do without. And so those, those, those ones are, are quite fixed in stone, I must say. Um, one of the... Sorry? Now, your thoughts on the two-party state or, or trying to break right. through the idea? Of the yeah, I, look, I, I think that Ghanaians have, um, and let me just say that we, if you notice, there's been a, a real shift in the demography within our country, which is that, you know, we used to have a whole batch of um, a very elderly generation that uh, which party they voted for was not even ideological. It was purely based on this is what we voted for as a family, and therefore that is what. So it's a 
Whereas you have a whole new generation of young people now who don't really care about uh, what party their parents used to vote for. For them, they just want to see life work. They just want life to work. So anybody who can make life work for them um, is indeed their party. Um, so in a manner of speaking, changes in our, in our demography. Um, there's a lot more diaspora coming into Ghana now and having their influence on the way um, we say things and do things. Um, but there's also the sense now, um, real sense on the ground that look, we've been lied to for so long. Um, and, and for me, that is the most uh, you know, intrinsic asset that we have is to, is, to, is to merge our message with that reality people are facing. That look, you've done this, go between the NDC and NPP for 27 years, show me one single thing you have gotten out of all of it. You know, uh, and so and so, I, I feel that Ghanaians are actually by themselves starting to feel the heat of just doing things the MPP and NDC way, and it really has not added anything to their lives. Uh, and and I think they are aware of that now. The diaspora, and I think that's a interesting um, point to make in terms of the influence that the diaspora having inside the country. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, this year we were supposed to have the ability to vote outside of Ghana for the diaspora. Yeah. Um, yeah. It obviously is not know. going to happen, yeah. um, which is another crime in itself. But what, what, aside from kind of influencing the family members and friends back home or moving back and therefore adding to the numbers within the borders, what type of influence do you think that the, the diaspora could have, number one, in this election, but number two, if given actually given that opportunity to vote um, in subsequent elections? I think that the power of the diaspora goes way beyond voting rights. Uh, let me just put that on record. I, I think the influence, and, and I'm not saying this because I have been a diaspora, but being on this side has become so obvious. So I'll tell you, there are three levels on which the diaspora is, is hugely powerful. Um, the first level is in the uh, is, is in the uh, 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 what's it called uh, transfers or uh, trans uh, what's it called? Uh, well, I say remittances. Remittances, remittances. Yes. So the diaspora alone make remittances to this country that are at par um, with the the income tax that we get from individuals in this country, and we do not have a lot more Ghanaians in the diaspora than we have in Ghana. So that in terms of economic sense, that is a huge uh, power base they, they hold. The, the second thing is uh, for me, uh, which is one of the most critical areas of, of power brokerage I think the diaspora has, is in their expertise. I think there are so many people in the diaspora, some I have met, many more I probably have not met, doing some really, I mean, excruciatingly amazing things out there. Um, and some of them would have loved to come back and support, but it's that thinking that, you know, people don't see you for what you have to do here. They see you more for how much money you can give a politician or how loud you are. And then for these people I talk about, you know, they build their lives around how capable they have been. So they're not going to just throw that in the air one day and say, uh, because I've been asked to shout as a politician, I'll leave all that behind and come and do that. And so I feel that the diaspora has a huge base in terms of their expertise that they can bring back home to support.
before. How would you incentivize that? How would you? And this is actually a question I, I've asked um, the Minister for Trade, um, Kalinzi. Right, no. How exactly do you plan to incentivize the diaspora to bring their skills back home? I think the first level of inspiration is quite intrinsic, which is that I intend my government to be one that is uh, purely founded on uh, meritocracy. Um, I, I don't intend bringing people on board simply because they've made the most noise during the campaign or they've given some money during campaign. That's, that's not what is going to work for me. I, I have been a professional through and through. I know the capabilities of professionalism and professionals themselves. And so one of the foundations I've always cried about is the fact that if for nothing at all, let my government be seen as one that valued meritocracy. If we can do that, I feel that a lot of people who do not want to be colored in any shape or form would then start saying to themselves, you know what, I can go back and be valued for what I have to offer, not for the money I don't have, not for the, the screaming I cannot scream. I think it, though, that's not a sort of tangible element you can, you can, you can put a finger on. But it's, it's one of ensuring that people feel that, you know what, this is the environment they belong to. Um, and, and these are things I have experienced for myself. When I came to the UK, I was told by my friends, fellow Ghanaians, that, oh, you, you know, you can't get your, in, in brackets, uh, papers. You can't get your documents of leave of stay and all that until you spend 10 years there and 10 years. But no, my, my boss called me one day and said, look, we really value the kind of work you do here. Do you intend to stay here? And I said yes, and said let's make it happen. So it's it's the little things, you know. Uh, and I've said this that there are several ways we can go about this. Look, we should begin to be recruiting people if we have a specific area, for example, in the sciences and technology, that we feel that there are skills out there that we need to bring in country to help nurture that sort of new economy we want to build we should be able to create schemes for getting those kind of people into society, into our local society, um, you know, through a different route. The UK does it and says, what, uh, working uh, visa or something. Those are things we have to do. Mm -hmm. um, we are planning to actually have uh, something we call a diaspora village. By the way, it's not a proper village, but uh, it's, it's a living environment where um, it's the first level, it's the first place that if you're coming from the diaspora into Ghana, I have come back to the diaspora, you don't just want to throw people into the society. Some may not survive. And so what we're trying to do is to build a diaspora village that ensures that you find a more at ease way of integrating into society at your pace. You know, we feel this little... What does that look like, like an expatriate society? Would that be, like you said, it's not a real village, but like a virtual reality no, type no, of I'm, I'm, uh, Facebook for the diaspora? Or No, I'm, I'm just saying it's not a village. I'm saying you go to uh, Kukurantumi village. That's not a kind of village. <laughs> I'm talking about, you know, uh, maybe it, it could look like an estate, a big, you know, uh, diaspora estate where um, right in the middle mm -hmm. of uh, a, a town or a city itself, but it gives people an opportunity mm -hmm. to, to hang right in the middle of one leg in the society and one leg still connected to its other people from the diaspora. 
Is there not a concern of recreating a cantonment situation where they effectively, um, where all the expatriates go and pretend as if they're not really in Ghana at all and and effectively segregating themselves from society? No, I mean, our society is quite quite intricate now for you to feel you can actually segregate yourself. I mean... uh, uh, East Legon started along those lines. East Legon has been totally absorbed into the, 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 the Accra, Accra, let me put it, the Accra vibe. So uh, we're, we're quite intricately uh, wired now to, to assume that, you know, we can actually or we will actually create uh, uh, silos. Um, I don't think that is the idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea is so not to create silos. Uh, and I don't think that's what we want in society. Mm-hmm. But uh, we, we do want okay. to have something to help people integrate at their pace, certainly. Yeah, no, sure. definitely. Okay. Oh, sorry, Charlene, carry on. Uh, yeah, no, sorry, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to press on the diaspora bit a little bit more, just, just because I know that a lot of, <laughs> I know a lot of people who, who will listen to this are in the diaspora, so this bit matters a lot more to them, unfortunately, than perhaps the education bit. But... Um, the one of the biggest one of the biggest concerns obviously when someone um is moving from canada from north america from europe um or anywhere else is that obviously you've moved um maybe you've let you've left ghana and you've moved alternatively you've been born in those places you have climbed the ladder socially you've enjoyed social mobility somehow um and you've made enough money through your skills and everything else that you're finally living comfortably and then Ghana asks you to return. There, aside from just um, feeling like you're meritocratically or whatever, what's the word? Um, but you're being cho- chosen by merit. Aside from feeling like you're being chosen by merit, there are other concerns that people will have. Things like actually financial remuneration. Um, what what does what does a country like Ghana do? Because uh, it's it's like asking a Division Two team to buy Paul Pogba from Manchester United. It, like you, you cannot attract right. a, a player of that caliber to a club of that of that yeah, um, I get you. size. Yeah, no, I I think Shelling, it, it's a matter of being realistic. I mean, um, I I certainly am very realistic when it comes to these things. Uh, we're not saying you know we want to buy the. Um, and and if you go, let me let me put it this way rather. If you if you go on to the stock exchange, for example, there you, you have you have various options. You could actually buy a low-tier company that you feel has huge potential um, and watch it rise, or you could buy a middle-tier um, uh, company that you feel has both potential um, and is very uh, how do I put it uh, stable. Um, and so you're seeing a lot of growth, but you're also stable in terms of incomes coming in. Or you could buy a very mature uh, investment that you know has all the stability you want and it's not going to be very volatile. Um, and then there is some money coming in that you can go to bed and sleep and know that no matter what happens, it will stay stable. Um, I think what we're looking at is more the mid-tier um, um, of course, of course, if we create the opportunities and people in the higher tier feel that, you know what, um, we see that as a potential and therefore we want to come and be part of that growing potential before it actually explodes, 
that in itself mm -hmm. is an opportunity and mm -hmm. in, uh, in, in an economy for people to come down. I don't think we are looking at the opportunity merely from the point of view that it's all going to be mm -hmm. government bringing in these people. One of the ways, like I mentioned, we're looking at it is to also help create the environment for, for people with the skill set, with the capabilities who can say, you know what, um, I am already in an environment that is saturated in terms of my skill set. Um, where can I go? Is Ghana the place to go where I know that I can make the most of my, uh, my skill set and also go along with this country? It's going to grow, it's going to expand, it's going to blossom in another 10 years. I want to position myself there with me before that happens. So there are different ways of looking at this. And, and so for me, um, we're looking at it from the point of view that yes, let's attract those we can afford to attract. Um, Bring something to our society to make it blossom enough for even the high tiers to come in. So um, I know I know my answer is a bit in the air out there, but um, uh, I hope I hope I've been able to explain that to the level that gets you satisfied somewhat. Yeah, no, that's fine. <laughs> um, of course, we spoke about uh, diaspora and we spoke about the returns, and I think that this is something that it's literally on everyone's mind about the borders, about the opening, and of course, this has been caused by COVID, COVID-19. So I wanted to know from you, Marek, what are your thoughts in terms of how the government has uh, managed uh, the COVID-19 pandemic? And uh, what, of course, it might be, it might be not the case, but what would have you done differently? And of course, we never know. Things might be happening again. At the end of the day, we never play with health. So even when it comes to the health system, what do you think we should start implementing to make sure that we literally are, we can be, rather than a first world country, that we can be a country that can pride itself in providing the best health? Right. Um, in, in terms of... Uh... The COVID-19, I, and I mean, this is not something I'm saying on hindsight, so, so it doesn't have to look like, you know, I've got an opportunity of hindsight. I mean, when this thing started, I made a few, I put out a few statements. Uh, one of them was that, yes, we went ahead and shut the border uh, down south, which was literally just Accra. And, and I said, no, um, yes, you know, we may be able to shut the borders, but it's not going to have, uh, you know, apart from the fact that we've shut down access via uh, 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 flight routes. At the time that we did shut the borders, the cases up north in Burkina Faso were growing faster than ours. And I said, shut down those borders and hundreds of kilometer of, uh, line between ourselves and Cote d'Ivoire. So that didn't happen. Uh, subsequently, we had uh, migrants from Burkina Faso getting into Ghana. How they did, nobody knows today. Uh, and every single one of them that were tested had COVID-19. That's the first one. The second thing I mentioned was, you know what, when our cases had gotten to about 40 or 50 thereabouts, I asked, can we shut Accra and Kumasi down, or as many places as we need to shut? And the reason why we said what we said was that at, 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 at point 30 or 40, we figured even if you multiply that by 20, uh, which comes down to about 800, um, that's about enough that we can 
trace, quickly track down, quickly isolate, um, and then contain the situation because already our body crashed. Um, that didn't happen. In fact, I was called being excessively drastic. Um, and then when the cases hit over 150, we now thought about having a partial lockdown. Um, and even when the partial lockdown was about to happen, I said, shut all the exit points from Accra and Kumasi before you put down the, uh, um, the lockdown so that people don't have to leave Accra uh, with the disease. It did not happen, and that is when the community spread happened. So I'm just saying all this so it's not, it doesn't sound like this is on the matter of hindsight. I felt, you know, um, this is not an ordinary uh, thing. This was a pandemic. Uh, by the time it got to Ghana, it had already been a pandemic. Or they needed to be, you know, treated with as much drasticness as, as was necessary. I feel, I feel that if we had had that lockdown from day one, we would not have needed a two-week uh, partial lockdown um, and everything that has happened in between. That's my viewpoint. Um, currently, um, one of the things I have struggled with, and we have kept saying, and myself and um, our health team, in fact, our senior health advisor, we've kept saying this thing, that, you know what, mm -hmm. let's not focus, and we've been saying this from day one, let's not focus on just the number of deaths, because everybody kept saying, Oh, the deaths are not much. Uh, they, you know, they, we're fine because there are no many deaths. We kept saying you can't keep your eye on the death. Keep your eye on the mounting numbers because at a point we're gonna find out that our health system cannot cope. And once we get to that point, mm -hmm. tilting over its coping capabilities, we're going to have a lot more deaths. Nobody listened to us. Uh, everybody kept telling us, oh, that's not how everybody else is looking at it in the world. And we kept saying, we can't look at it the way everybody else is looking at it. Because we have different facilities. We have different capabilities. Uh, now we are at the point where we've reached the death of uh, people. We are now about 120-something. Um, and we know that our hospitals are getting overcrowded and our you know, isolation centers are getting overcrowded. What I have started saying now is it is about time we look at two things. One, the treatment that we have used so far, if indeed the recoveries are the numbers we are seeing, then it is sensible to also assume that we have hugely been successful with the recoveries. And if we have, then it's about time we start probably proliferating some of those, uh, uh, those cures or some of those treatments so that you know, because currently we don't even know who has a disease, but who is walking around with the disease, so to speak. And so I feel that we need to start looking at the way we are treating this. Um, but also, if it becomes necessary, I think that Kumasi and Accra may be needed to be shut down again because the two of them, between them, have 80% of the cases that we are currently dealing with. And, and so let's let's just use it then as a segue into your health policy then. Like, what's the plan right. for Ghana's health system? Right. Under um, coffee game? I mean, the, the thing about our health system is that we we do want to move away from the... Sorry. We do want to move away from the current funeral economy to a primary health care system. We, we, our health system currently is hugely uh, secondary and tertiary. You know, everybody gets up and... They go straight into the second of our health sector. 
what we want to do is primary healthcare. Uh, and in fact, it, what it means is that we want to focus more on preventative healthcare. Um, and I, I always like to do these things with example. I'll give an example. One of the biggest um, um, uh, uh, incidences of death for within our health sector right now is um, is uh, heart-related diseases. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. But if you go into any hospital right now and ask what are the big things that have been done in the last three years to ensure that some preventive agenda is in session to deal with that, there is absolutely nothing. The second is diabetes. There's absolutely nothing happening. And if you look at all of this, all of these are preventable diseases, or at least diseases that we can catch early in time and make sure that they start treatment before they escalate to secondary or tertiary levels of of our healthcare. Our focus wants to be on primary healthcare, simple as that. And so I'll give you an example. Um, in terms of what I just, example I just gave, I want to see a situation where by the time you hit 40, it doesn't matter whether you're a man or woman, if you have your health insurance, as soon as you hit 40, you should have an automatic test. The women, we should be seeing whether they have been tested for um, uh, breast cancer and the likes. With the men, we want to see that they have been tested for uh, uh, prostate cancer and the rest. And the women uh, should be, and the men and the women both should be tested for, you know, their 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 heart uh, uh, conditions. And these are not difficult things to do. As a matter of fact, from what my health team tells me, it's cheaper to actually, um, uh, uh, sorry, uh, assess these things of individuals than actually attempt to treat them when they become uh, big issues. And so for me, I, I think the primary healthcare agenda is the way to go for this country, especially knowing our resource base. Sure. Um, and then in light of that as well, um, in terms of prevention, and obviously how we got onto this onto this conversation through the COVID situation, what are the type of measures that you're gonna be taking um, or, or the type of policies you're going to put in place to help us prevent um, pandemics or national right. disasters um, occurring again. Right, right, right. Um, so one of the things we've said, um, and it's something we already have on our manifesto, uh, is that we do want to uh, have uh, uh, an independent unit now. Um, sorry, I'm forgetting the name, but we want to have an independent unit <laughs> Um, whilst I'm talking, I'm going to look for the name. Uh, but we want to have an independent unit mm -hmm. that um, is responsible for, uh, what's the name, um, for modeling. Uh, for modeling. Um, the whole idea is to be sure that um, we can see some trends of possible risks before they actually hit. And even if they don't hit, we want to be ready for them if they don't hit this time round. So as a matter of speaking... Would this unit replace NADMO? Sorry? Would that unit then replace NADMO? No, so NADMO is a disaster management unit, which means that a disaster would have happened before NADMO comes into the picture. Um, what we are looking at okay. is uh, a department that is connected to health, that is connected to uh, the environment, uh, that is connected to the military, for example, but a central point where we can model all the risks associated with gun. Um, and the reason why we want to do that, because 
example is that we, the, the, the coast of Ghana is a very um, highly, uh, how do I put it, highly active uh, uh, earthquake zone. I don't know if you know about mm -hmm. it, uh, especially the area of Katwa, for yeah, example. Yeah. And guess where? Yeah, right. Yeah, guess where is the most populated part of Accra is Kaswa. And mm. nothing right now that says if X happens right now, that is what we have prepared ourselves to do. A couple of uh, weeks back, there was a number of earth tremors, and about four or five of them in quick successions. When I talk to a seismologist, for example, uh, who is a Ghanaian, but who is based in the UK, one of the things he said to me was, we are already 10 years um, when the next big uh, earthquake should have happened. So he even suspects that these are something like pre-earthquake pre, pre, um, uh, tremors um, as sort of warning yeah. signal. But they've come and gone, and we've had nothing, absolutely nothing. And so these are the kind of preparedness situations we want to put ourselves in and get you know, the best people in there. Um, if there are softwares, we want to get them in there. And the idea is simple. Can we model the risks that we are exposed to? Which of them are the big risks? And if they should happen, what should we be ready to be doing? Simple as. Okay, I see. Um, so, Charlene, I there's something very. I'll, I'll let you no, go. <laughs> there's something very important that, to me, it's uh, yeah, it's been uh, on my mind quite a lot. So we all we've all heard of uh, Professor Jane Nana Poku Ajumine. She's the vice president. <laughs> She's the VP. Oh, you know this was gonna come. So, we've all have. I think we've all have had different type of conversations. And uh, one of the mm. things is, first of all, how come there's no, and people said that perhaps this will show uh, we can readdress the gender imbalance when it comes to politics and top positions in terms of different industries. Uh, and uh, one of the question is, why and how, and especially how do you, will you implement through your policies um, greater diversity when it comes to women in politics, when it comes to different position in terms of top management? Because we all know, let's face it, Ghana is really run by women. So not to, not to the detriment of any men, but when you go around, you really see that women are, have been doing a great job and even the last celebration in Kumasi for, uh, for the independence, it really put women at center, market women at center stage. That really showcased how important yeah. they have been. And uh, another question is, we've all heard, unfortunately, of these horrible cases of rape, of abuse. Uh, we even heard of uh, different people that might, start a, that might start a job and that might go to school. And then, unfortunately, they get... Uh, yeah, they have this abuse of power with people asking very inappropriate questions or even teachers try to molest uh, young women. So mm. what would you do tangibly when it comes to that? Because we've all heard it. So many people come and say, oh, we will make sure we'll find the perpetrators and we'll deal with them. <laughs> this has been, exactly, this has been going for so long and nothing has changed, nothing has happened. And we all have, we all have, 
women in our lives and uh, mm. we need to make sure that they can live a peaceable life being able to go to work not having anyone asking you oh i really like what you're wearing today maybe you should change this and that because that's not pertinent and that's not relevant so what would you do as the next president Oh, first of all, thank you for calling me the next president. I really appreciate that. Um, <laughs> um, no, um, there are there are quite a number of things we we have uh, we have put out um, that we plan that we will do. Um, I'll mention a few to you. Um, there's a there's a public register we want to initiate, um, and it's a public register not only of rapists but um, as the public, let me just talk about the rape side, um, but not just the rape side, but the uh, feminine abuse or abuse uh, register, because that's largely what it is. Um, so it doesn't matter whether you've, you've raped a little girl or you've raped an adult girl. Um, um, there are, it's going to be divided into sections, you know, about whether you've, you've, you've been involved with a minor or whether you've been abusive or things like that. But basically what we want to do is to make sure that we have a publicly um, uh, open register. And, um, and that register, once you have been um, involved in any such case, um, and it's legally right to do so, we want your name to get on that register and it will remain on that register for the next five years. Um, that register will show your your last location at which you have committed day crime, um, what the judgment on your case has been, or where it is currently in terms of is it pending. But the critical agenda for such a register is that one is going to be public, uh, it's going to be openly accessible, and we feel that it is because currently what tends to happen, uh, uh, Eric and. Uh, is that a rape case happens, it's been reported by uh, victims or parents of victims to the police. So it's gotten, once it gets to the police, it has actually entered our legal system, right? But you would, you would find families who would come together and say, uh, let's talk about it. This is house matter. That's the term they use. matter. Let's go and talk about it. See, I, I want to have a situation that says, even if you the person who has been raped or the family of the person who has been raped decide, you know, by your own whatever way, means or shape, that it is house matter. The rest of society should still know who are the rapists amongst them. Yeah. I think it is critical that because we have had situations in these countries where one teacher has done some, uh, sorry, I, let me choose my words carefully has done something very inappropriate in one quarters um it's been hush hushed and then he shows up in another you know uh, uh sector of the of the economy or country and takes up another appointment and nobody knows because reality is that nobody can check whether anybody has done anything anywhere else and what we want to create is more or less a similar to what you guys in Britain would call a, a credit system, but it's not a credit system. It's, it's something that allows, if you go for employment, they can run your name through that database and find out that you're clean. Uh, you're not gonna come here and repeat any such problem. If somebody's employing a teacher to a school, they can check through that register. If you even have a neighbor, you can check that register. I think once people know that 
their name is going to be out there and it's not going to easily be, be wiped off their skin. People tend to want, want to become careful because a lot of the people who do these things are actually sensible, logical people. But there isn't any form of you know, societal castigation that makes them feel that if I do this, I will be cut off. That's why they keep doing it. And that, but that is one side. I am also very heavy on enforcement of the law. Anybody, people who know me call me I'm the head teacher. I, I believe in enforcement 120%. Um, and I feel that we've got some really good laws um, and that they should be enforced. And one of the ways I want to see that happen is to and no political interferences whatsoever from my quarters in some of this uh, uh, in some of these uh, cases. I, I believe the way I have seen systems work in other countries. Look, if you prosecute to the fullest extent, hundred people in the first hundred days of office um, where rape is concerned, everybody else will line up because you've literally just sent a message that you could be next. But it's because these messages are not being sent. Everybody feels that, look, even if it happens, I can take my 200 Ghana cities and go and pay my way out. Or I can take my 2,000 Ghana cities and pay my way out. So we have political interference taking away from the, the institutions that are supposed to enforce these laws. We are not going anywhere. And that is something I want to do. Um, sure. And, and I, I don't want to interrupt you because that was a really very important point. Um, but then also um, on, on the women question, how, do, how does your leadership, how does that positively influence the participation of women in, in the corridors of power? Oh, um, quite. I mean, one of the things I have said is that, and I go back to the point I made earlier that, you know, well, my issue is not about this person or that person. My issue is about whoever is capable for the job. It does not matter to me whether it's, uh, it's a man or a woman or whether it's a woman or a man. Um, but I have also consciously made the decision that we've, we've stayed backward on this uh, um, equalization or equity in, in terms of, uh, uh, of power balance for so long that I have made the decision that one of the things I want to see implemented under my government is the constitutional review recommendation that says that a minimum of 30% of people employed within the public sector at all levels are women. It's out there. The question we should be asking is why hasn't any of the former governments implemented it? You know, so I, I this is something I personally have requested that it has to be on the manifesto so we can tie I mean, so that is one of the key recommendations I want to um, uh, have, uh, 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 how do call it, implemented uh, during my turn. I think it will go a far way. But I, I tell you something actually more beautiful than, than doing that, that we, we decided we will do. is that we've set up, we, we intend to set up a fund. It's a special fund because I have worked in corporate sector in Ghana. One of the key things you always hear um, is that, Oh, we wanted to employ her, but you know she's not there yet. She doesn't, she doesn't have it. The, the 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 expertise. She doesn't have it. So I've said, you know what? Okay, you know people in authority and start to say men um, have always given that excuse. We will take that excuse out of the picture. So what we've decided to do is that we're going to create a fund. 
basically what that fund is seeking to do is that at the end of every three years, we are going to elect, um, I can't remember the exact number, but it's something between five and 10 women from each of the regions of Ghana. And we are talking about the best of women, either from tertiary or whatever level, out of every region. We're gonna put them on a specially designed program. And it's an executive program that seeks to equip them and make them the most capable executives you can find in country and we are not doing this to just send them into politics we are doing them so they can fit at every level of executive decision making whether it's in the private sector or whether it's in the uh, the public sector the only reason why we're doing this is that look people talk about oh there's a glass ceiling we to break and i say to them look a woman may break a glass ceiling the reality is that because of policies that governments make. Even if you break the glass ceiling, there's a steel ceiling that is right above only government policy can break. And so we want to do this to ensure that we are beginning to create uh, 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 women capabilities that have no questions around them in terms of uh, what level of uh, executive uh, uh, dispensation they should be employed in. Um, and I feel that if we begin to do these things, then we can have women like that who have been supported to be at the excellence of, of power, be able to also pull other people uh, uh, up the ladder. And, and I think that's, that's the way that we, we have to uh, look at it. Otherwise, uh, waiting for women themselves to break through the ladder and come up, uh, you know, it, it's gonna take a while. I mean, the last time I checked our, our gender disparity index was we were ranking what 140 something out of 151. So we're not going to break. No, we're not. We're not. We're not doing great at all, to be honest. Um, on the gender issue, it's 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 quite disappointing, actually, given what what Ghana tries to say that it is. And especially, is. Um, and also because when you look at the history through independence, I mean, women from the likes of Madame Theodosia and all the other women uh, mm. from the December thirty first movement, they mm. did so mm. much. Yeah, I mean, Ghanaian, Ghanaian women are active women. If you take a trip through Makala, and I go there quite regularly, they, they aren't it, silent. It they have their opinions. <laughs> and according to yeah. statistics, if exactly. I'm not wrong, uh, Ghana's got the highest numbers of uh, female entrepreneurs in Africa, which should, uh, and I always believe, and I hope that Marek, you'll be able to, uh, when in power, uh, you'll be able to literally work with them because if we have such a high number why don't we turn it into businesses that can definitely foster further opportunities for other people? It's, it's a very ingrained um, societal issue, isn't it? Because um, the, the, the people who, who, who have um, dispensable capital in our society are, are mostly men. And, and mm. they would mostly give it to men. Um, most women who you find as industrious as Charlene uh, described, who are willing to go out there and make something good happen to themselves, are also not willing to go by the terms that most men would. Uh, and I'm not talking against men or anything. I'm just, you know, saying things as they are. 
Um, so please, men out there, don't, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, but the reality is that most of the women who are actually capable and need the money to push the business or entrepreneurship have done so well so far that, you know, it's ridiculous to ask them to abide by different terms that we would not apply to men who come for those same monies. Okay. And so I, I think we are in a situation where um, it, it cannot be solved by allowing the private sector itself to just continue because it hasn't happened. It has to take an external sort of uh, policy agenda to make that happen. Um, I mean, we all saw what happened in, when we say these things, they say we shouldn't use Rwanda as an example, but we all saw what happened in Rwanda uh, when Kagame started the microfinance uh, process that they yeah. equal amounts of money to men and women. After two or so years, uh, the women came back with more profit and he just simply said, okay, so the men are get 40%, the women are get 60%. Um, and it's mm -hmm. a self-balancing agenda. So the more women do, the more they get more funding and the less men get funding. Uh, and the more men do, it, it yeah. evens out. It goes back to the men. So it, 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 that, for me, is an even playing field because you are being given capital based on capabilities, not because you're a man or woman. Yeah, I hear that. Um, I, I would love to talk about... I wanted to say tourism, but actually I don't I don't really care for that in this conversation. Um transport. Right. So um what what is the agenda for the roads, the trains, and the airports? Especially especially I think there's been a lot of chat around the airports, the amount of money that's being sunk into our airports at the moment. I don't think the agenda is really clear from from the current government or the or the last government who started a few of these projects. Um, what's your What's your plan? Um, what are the key targets for um, our airports and our aviation industry, then our railway, and then um, to end on the roads if we could? Um, just because obviously that that as you know is a, a bigger deal for us. And Charlene, um, don't forget Trotras, please, because it's... yes, that's why I want to end on the. That's why I want to end on the right. Um, no, I, <laughs> the easier thing to handle. Um, that's the a huge area. I mean, um, what I can say to you is that, for a fact, we don't. We've decided we don't want to do roads the way roads have been done. Or um, um, so let me start from the airport, actually. Um, one of the big agendas we have is so on a broader level. We want to ensure that Ghana becomes, so here's my agenda for business, is that we want to get to a point you cannot do business in West Africa without going through Ghana. That's the, that's the broad level agenda. Our airport is one key such agenda. Um, the vision for our airport is that we do, we are hugely considering an expansion of our airport. Um, and, and, mm -hmm. and we want to do something a bit different. What we want to do is to make the Kotoka International Airport, or if indeed we, you know, we're blessed with a lot more money to build a new airport. One of the key things we're looking for, for the purpose for which that airport will serve is to make sure the most trafficked, uh, uh, the most trafficked, what's the name they use? The most trafficked transit airport. 
We want to have our airport be the business hub for West Africa. We want, a, we want an airport that ensures that, look, if you had business to do, Charlene, you should actually be mm -hmm. down in Ghana, get out of your flight, go into an environment where is very hugely business friendly, do business with your counterparts either here in Ghana or who are also elsewhere on transit, conclude whatever business you need to do, get on your next flight and leave. Um, we feel that is the, the next level of business, doing business that we want to, we want to start engineering for West Africa, especially. Um, because I, I have been, luckily, I've, I've flown around a lot and there's a lot of transit that happens. But if you notice, all the transit do not have one convergence point. The only time that happens mm -hmm. in, is, in the, is in the East African region where the two convergence points are Ethiopia and uh, Kenya. There is no convergence points in West Africa. And I think that is an advantage we need to take because look, where we are at now, we are in the middle of the Francophone and English speaking West African uh, 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 sub-region. And we have to use that position. Mm -hmm. We are not currently doing that. So that is one big plan we have for the, the air aviation uh, industry. Aside what we want to talk about when we get into... Uh, uh, how, how exactly are you going to do that? Is that just through... Um, I know the current government were looking at discussing a new hub with Ethiopian Airlines. Is that the type of thing you're looking to do as well? Or well, what's, the, airlines, what's the Ethiopian kind of... Ethiopian Airlines is not coming to run a hub. Ethiopian Airlines is, is, is intended to... Um, manage our fleet, which you know the government of Bay has decided we cannot manage. So, Ethiopian Airlines is coming in as a partner. They would own most of the fleet, uh, from what I'm hearing. Um, yeah. Would, would that type of thing fit into your policy as well? Then. Well, I have always said we could have done it differently. Um, it all depends, Charling. I I would like to see the contracts that have uh, been signed because that's always going to be the starting point. Um, I feel yeah. that we could have yeah. signed a management uh, contract that allows Ethiopia to help with the management, but not necessarily uh, own the assets that are going to be used to run. Um, but you know, obviously, they have a different agenda. And I say these things I say because um, I have a my background is to make sure that it becomes a business hub, but also to make it um, uh, a tourism hub uh, for West Africa. So. It is based on those two levels of uh, of mindset that I have said that it, it's required that we own most of the assets of running such a hub. It cannot be in the hands of somebody else. Um, so like you rightly put it, I think a lot is going to depend on what and uh, conditions they agree with Ethiopia, um, if ever they do so before we come into office. Um, but even if that is the case, you know, there's always opportunities to really look at such contracts and determine what might work for this country better. Um, so, so that's with aviation. Um, in terms of roads, um, th there's one key thing that we feel that are two key things really that we feel our roads should, should be doing, and then I'll say them very quickly. One is that we don't want to just build roads simply because we promised a chief in some corner that we'll build a road and his, his village is going to have one of those roads. That's not. Um, so what we want to do is to make sure that we begin to set a more strategic criteria for building roads. And, and the, the criteria is quite simple. Every road that we 
this country should be serving at least three purposes. It should be supporting the, the logistic drive uh, to improve logistics in the country. It should be supporting agriculture, in other words, to be able to be supporting the move of agri or uh, agri inputs, uh, inputs from south to north or, or products from, from north to south. Um, and it should also be supporting uh, one way or another uh, tourism. If a road infrastructure is not supporting any of these three things, then it simply means that not a majority of Ghanaians are going to be benefiting from that road. And therefore, we see no reason, tangible reason, or strategic reason why we should be building that road. Because roads, they even cost more money to maintain. And so if we're going to build it, I always say that we should be delivering value for money from the perspective of even the choice we make of, of, of our infrastructure. Uh, and, and I'm sad when I say these things because so far we've looked at you know value for money as if you can pay the least money, then that is value for money. That is not yeah. value for money. Yeah. So, so then with, with value as well, sorry to keep up one more time. Um, uh, okay, let me let me phrase this in a certain oh. way, um, like an exam question. <laughs> so for for, for twenty marks. <laughs> Trotras should be abolished. Discuss. Trotras <laughs> <laughs> um, should be abolished. Discuss. Well, that is a very tenacious question. We've got to be careful about this, and I'm being very strategic here. You cannot just throw yeah. Trotras off simply because we've decided to throw Trotras off. One, we've got to find a different means of earning money for those folks. Um, and two, We've got to find a different means of ensuring some central transportation for people who will be losing out on protos, which is what I think you want to get to. Um, there is a plan indeed to make sure that centralized transportation becomes a reality. Um, uh, and so we, we're going to have a central section of Accra, which is already congested and which we don't want to allow protos to get into, but only allow central transport to get into. That way we feel that um, it's a lot more uh, at ease to get into the center of Accra, especially the central business district, um, um, but also not totally uh, down the trot trust. I think what we want to do with trot trust is to ensure um, safety um, procedures to be followed and critically uh, enforced. Uh, one of them we're going to is uh, uh, emission taxes. Um, we feel there's too many, uh, some cars that are killing everybody else. Um, and, and we should have uh, very legal ways of, of not, we're not saying get them off the street, but if you want to keep them off the street, then make sure they're not killing everybody. And if you're going to put them on the street, we'll make it very convenient for you to keep them on the street. Um, and so we, we've got to give people the opportunity to make choices and take responsibility for those choices, you know, um, and I think that's the, the best way to go. So, erase short trolls, um, but we can regulate how we get them into, into working for our society uh, and becoming. So, if I'm understanding you correctly, then in 20 years' time, we would still have trotras, but they would just be, uh, I guess, um, eco-friendly and road safe. Well, not not that. Um, I think in 20 years' time, you have a lot more centralized uh, transport. Um, so, it will be easy okay. for you to go from point A to B, 
but you will still have transport that caters for the very, very poor society who will need to get some. Except that you may not have as much as you have them on the roads now, 20 years from now. Right. Perfect. So you never said how much. Pardon? How many marks? Oh, oh, sorry. Um, you, you, the examiner's still still tallying. Well, one second. I can tell that you're a good student, Marik. So you're interested in your final mark. So we will definitely let you know. But on this note, I, both I and Charlene, and of course, Farquharson, would like to really thank you for taking time to join us on the Ghana Products okay. Podcast on the GPP. And uh, yes, we're going to continue to look out for any update because, of course, we need to know if we had, and especially about your exclusive on uh, the VP because it's VP season, so definitely. And, uh, <laughs> so thanks again. And uh, yes, good luck with your presidential race. Yeah, no, Derek and uh, and uh, Madam Bello, uh, thank you so much for having me. I genuinely do appreciate it, and and I've enjoyed the conversation. And I think I think these are the things we need to be doing. Uh, we all need to be involved in the process. Uh, I have certainly taken some things away that will inform me going forward. And so and so, um, thank you, thank you for helping Ghana in the way you have, even though you're far away in the dust. But God bless us all. No worries. Thank you very much. I'll definitely be there. It's up with you on social right. media. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Take Bye-bye. care. Enjoy the rest of your evening. You too, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. And guys, as uh, we know, again, uh, on to another one because we will be coming again with a new episode with more content and great things as indeed we will keep you informed entertained and educated on all things Ghana and all things diaspora. In the word of Osajefo, Osa, did I say correctly, Charlene? Because I'm not going to... Yeah, you came you, there. Osajefo, that's fine. It. In his word, <laughs> for whatever. Thanks again and on to the next one. Bye. Bye, Charlene.